Welcome to Montgomery Talks, our regular podcast on local issues. And today with me is David Reichenbaugh. And um, he's written a book called In Pursuit, The Hunt for the Beltway Snipers. The 17th anniversary of the first local shootings will be October 2nd, which is why we invited Mr. Reichenbaugh to talk about his book. You have a unique perspective on this investigation, and I wonder if let you describe it. Sure. And it's hard to believe it's been 17 years already. 17 years ago, I was a lieutenant in the Maryland State Police. I was assigned as the operations commander for Criminal Intelligence Division, which is how I wound up getting involved from on the case from really day one. Of course, this was just one year after 9-11. So obviously, it had been a recent discovery within the last six months or so. Prior, there was a Maryland connection to the hijackers of the planes. That obviously upset the governor very much. And we started looking around as an agency and realized Maryland is just full of targets that would be high profile for a terrorist attack. So we were asked to stand the intelligence division up and get boots on the ground doing active intelligence work, trying to hopefully prevent another terrorist attack. And when this all happened, we all jumped to, it made sense to me at the time, this is another act of terrorism. Uh, When Montgomery County called early that first day, of course, there had been a a shooting the, the night before on the second. But on the third, when the unfortunate bodies started to fall, Montgomery County reached out to the Maryland State Police for assistance. We, of course, readily jumped in. That's what the Maryland State Police does. As a criminal intelligence operations commander, I became involved very, very early on. And uh, our role primarily was to back up Montgomery County Police Department. And, um, you know, Captain Barney Forsyth had the primary responsibility for these shootings. And a terrific investigator. I had known him for a lot of years. And when Barney asks for help, you know it's pretty serious and they need help. One thing that we could do early on that first day was flood Montgomery County with uniformed troopers from all over the state. Um, The state police is very good at that. We're very capable of doing that. We can get a lot of troopers anywhere in the state within an hour or two. My role as non-uniform was to grab a couple of our criminal analysts and head over and see what, if anything, we could do. And very much that first few days There was a lot of confusion. Uh, There was a lot of really scratching our our heads, trying to just wrap your mind around why this was occurring. These victims were all completely unrelated. There were no connections whatsoever to any of our victims. The typical homicide, and I hate to use that term typical, but most homicides, the victim knows the killer or there's some sort of connection, whether it's domestic whether it happens to be a clerk standing behind a counter at a 7-Eleven, there's some sort of connection. There just did not seem to be any connection. It obviously was not race. It was not religion. It was just random shootings. And the first thing that popped out was, this is that dreaded other shoe that we were all waiting to drop. And this was an act of terrorism. I mean, we're right outside the nation's capital. And here we go. That was our first thought. 
Right. And you mentioned 9-11. Um, and in between the snipers and 9-11 was, of course, the anthrax thing. So it, yes. sometimes I think it's amazing we survived uh, to 2003 because it just it seemed like every time you turned around, there was another yes. huge event happening to this relatively small area. And I can tell you, the citizens of Maryland were on edge right. and certainly law enforcement was. We and, and honestly, it this paid dividends because after 9-11, all the local agencies, we always got along very well with Montgomery County Police Department, but those relationships were forged even closer out of necessity right. because we needed to talk to each other. We needed to know what was going on and we could share information. And of course, the state police being a state organization, we were sort of a good landing spot to sort of collect everything that was going on in the state and talked to everybody. And those relationships paid dividends as this played out over 23 days. So just to skip ahead in case anybody, I mean, it's been 17 years and you practically have to be 40 to have probably remember this. But John, John Allen Muhammad, for his role in this, was put to death in 2009. Lee Boyd Malvo, his, at the time, his teenage protege, I guess, um, he's still in prison Yes. In Virginia, I believe? Yes, he is. And he does have a case before the Supreme Court, correct? That is correct, but it's not what you would think. It's actually the state of Virginia that has appealed to the United States Supreme Court, and that has to do with sentencing. He received several life with no parole sentences in Virginia. He also has several sentences life in Maryland backing that up. And most people also do not know they were responsible for killings in other states. And there are several states that also would like to have a piece of Mr. Malvo. And one of the superior courts in in federal court overturned his life with no parole sentence. And the question before the court is, should a 17-year-old receive life with no parole? That's the court. And that's the, the court case that's pending. And the state of Virginia says, absolutely. When the sentences were overturned, the judge didn't completely overturn the sentence. He left it stand for a period of time to give Virginia a chance to appeal. Mm -hmm. And they did. And as I understand it, the Supreme Court is due to take that case up sometime here in the coming weeks. Right, right. And should they overturn those those sentences? Yes. The Maryland sentences still stand— um, yes. They are life sentences. They are not life without parole sentences. So they could, you know, okay, fine. Instead of Virginia paying for his um, three hots and a cot, Maryland will just pay for his three hots and a cot, right? That is correct. And and the way those sentences were handed down, his time in Maryland to serve does not start until he's brought to Maryland. Right. So October 2nd was the date of the, actually, I guess there were two shootings. One they missed. And one was yes. uh, a man by the name of James Martin, who would have been uh, 72, I think, now. Yes. He was um, uh, shot in the uh, parking lot of the shoppers. Right. On Northgate, Aspen Hill. Right, in Aspen Hill. Yeah, but on October 3rd was the day that I believe five people were shot, correct? That's correct. At what point on October 3rd did folks like the state police recognize that this was not your usual crime spree. I mean, what was it after the first shot? Was it after the second shot? Was the, it- uh, the first shooting on that morning of the third 
was at about 7.41 in the morning, and that was at the uh, Fitzgerald Auto Mall in Rockville when James Buchanan was shot. And, and he was simply out cutting grass as part of his employment there at the auto mall. The interesting thing about that particular shooting was it never got reported as a shooting. He was found in the parking lot. The mower was sort of sitting there on the, the curb. It was at first thought some terrible accident has happened. He either run over himself, something popped up and hit him. So he wasn't designated as a shooting victim for almost an hour till it was discovered when they got him to the hospital and found a bullet hole. In the meantime, a few minutes later at 8.12 at the mobile gas station in Aspen Hill, Mr. Welliker, uh, who he was shot as he was putting gas in his taxi cab. That was obvious homicide. Montgomery County's rolling on that. 8.37, crisp and juicy um, chicken there in Silver Spring. Sarah Ramos was shot as she sat on a uh, bench waiting for a bus and was killed. And at about that time, it was realized this this is getting out of control. This is not something that normally happens in Montgomery County or for that matter anywhere. Anywhere, right. The alarm bells certainly were going off. I believe Montgomery County realized that their resources were very quickly getting stretched further than they could handle it, and they asked for our assistance. We started rolling troopers in, if for nothing else, just to try to hit the streets. And the first thought was, is this has got to be some sort of an act of terrorism. All we had was supposedly a couple of guys in a white van and that had been seen. And that, that started from really the Ramos shooting and that there was a, a man there working, uh, doing some landscaping, heard the shot, looked up and saw a white van leaving the parking lot. And if you think about it, everywhere you go, there's white vans. Right. But that was what the initial lookout was because that's what we had. It was at first thought that she had committed suicide, but that very quickly realized that that was a homicide as well. Before they can really get started with even the crime scene investigation, at 830, uh, I'm sorry, at 958 in Kensington, uh, Lori Ann Lewis Rivera was shot and killed. And all she was doing was vacuuming her, I hate to use the term, but her soccer mom van. And none of these victims had any connection with each other. And they were about as random a victim as you could possibly get based on eyeball and gut feeling, it was believed already that the shooting of the night before was also somehow connected to this. And Montgomery County realized, we've got a shooting spree. We've got active shooters running around Montgomery County, which is totally different than if you have an active shooter in a building. Uh, an active shooter in a building, you can surround it. Right. Uh, yeah, there's terrible loss of life, but at least you've got it contained. We had no containment on this at all which is why we were flooding the county with troopers. So this goes on for three weeks. Yes. And law enforcement agencies throughout the state, actually, it wasn't just Montgomery County, it was throughout the state, were meeting every day, or at least talking every day, about new leads, new whatever, correct? Well, what happened was, very quickly, it was determined that there was need to create a task force. There was a task force, the sniper task force was formed. It was also very quickly realized that we were going to need federal assistance because we're also working that terrorist angle. 
plus the massive expense that goes into this, you couldn't have enough cops in Montgomery County to try to put a stop to this. So we were reaching out to all federal agencies. And when I say we, I say that collectively because it was really Montgomery County has always been the lead on this. Virginia, within the, the following day, became involved because right. the shooting started spreading there. Uh, the District of Columbia, ultimately Prince George's County, um, just about every law enforcement agency in Maryland had someone at least speaking daily with the task force in the event that it started in their area. But we had almost a thousand, but at the height of this thing, we almost had a thousand police officers, both county, state, and federal, working on this case. So you had police chiefs, you had sheriffs, you had top investigators. I guess conversing, was it like a, like a conference call or something? It, oh, no. We, we wound up taking over a building right beside Montgomery County Police Headquarters. There happened to be some vacant space. Uh, the federal government, the okay. FBI, created what was called a, a JOC, a Joint Operations Center. Okay. That's where all the investigators went. And that actually got stood up in just an amazing amount of time. Okay. You would think something like that would take months, if not a year, to, to establish. It was established once the decision was made. It was established and up and running within 12 to 18 hours. Okay. And that would have been when the police were on Research Boulevard? Yes. Okay. Well, the point I was going to make was with police chiefs and sheriffs and whatnot, you've, you've got a lot of egos in that room. Very much so. Um, and the FBI, uh, DEA. Right. What were those those meetings like? Did people want to I mean, did the FBI want to say, okay, Montgomery County, what do you think? Um, how can we help you? Or was it more of the FBI saying, hey, you're going to do what we tell you to do? You know what the amazing thing about this, and I, and I lean back to September 11th on this. When the Pentagon got hit, all agencies realized, you know what? We need to work together. We need to start talking to each other. Uh, just to give you an example, the night before the, the planes flew into the towers, a Maryland state trooper up on JFK Highway actually had a couple of them stopped on a speeding ticket. Trooper suspected something was wrong, ran every avenue they could run. Finally, it was determined, well, I've got nothing else. I've got a speeding ticket, wrote them a ticket, and on they went, ultimately flying into the towers. And you know what? That shakes up law enforcement because you realize, hey, yeah, we're the Maryland state police. We think we're the greatest agency in the world, but we can't do this alone. The county agencies realize, hey, this may happen in my county, but it's coming from other parts of the state. We need to cooperate with Prince George's County, with Frederick County, with the Maryland State Police, with Metropolitan, with Virginia. And before you know it, within a very short time after 9-11, we were meeting as agencies all together in a room at least once a month, sometimes more often just sharing, hey, this is what we've got. What do you got? And things, information began to flow back and forth like it should naturally. And egos get set aside when over 3,000 Americans die all at once. And this case benefited from that. And the egos were pretty much, for the most part, up until the very last hours were set aside. And this was unprecedented, the cooperation between county, city, state, and federal agencies. It really was seamless. And it's something, quite honestly, that I'm very proud of. And I think all of us were. I was a lieutenant. I was put in charge of a part of the intelligence gathering unit 
associated with this case, I had FBI agents assigned to me. I had AF or ATF agents assigned to me, and there wasn't any. It didn't matter what badge we wore. We had one goal, and that was to put a stop to our citizens being killed. The egos were set aside. Well, the stories that have come out, and since they're stories, you know, who knows how, they're, how they've been misinterpreted. But you mentioned the white box fan. Right. Charles Moose, I, I believe, if I remember correctly, was adamant that you know, it was a white box van, and he was sticking with that, even though there was some in the uh, law enforcement community who thought the blue caprice angle was definitely something that they should be pursuing. Now, can you talk about that? The white, sometimes law enforcement were our own worst enemies, and it happens. And when I talk about that, a homicide case, the worst thing law enforcement can do is get what we call tunnel vision. And not just homicide, but in any investigation. And that's where the investigator thinks he knows what happened, thinks he knows who did it, and gets blinders on and tries to make the evidence fit the preconceived idea. When the white box trucker van was first spotted, and that goes out, we accidentally programmed not only every cop, but every citizen to look for nothing but white vans. And we had tips by the thousands. If you drove a white van in Montgomery County or really anywhere in Maryland, you were getting stopped multiple times. And we act, you know, we also, that's also media fed. The media is putting out what the police are putting out. So the public is hearing it. And we actually accidentally programmed everybody to stop looking for anything except a white van. And if you and I walk out here right now on the street, we're probably within two minutes going to see a white van going up and down the street. There's that many of them. There's that many of them. And I can tell you I never believed really after the first day that they were in a white van. They would have had to have been completely idiots. And obvious with their success they had and the fact that we're stopping every white van moving – I knew they had to be listening to to the press, and it sort of became obvious with some of their actions as this case withdrew, you know, because they really got the God complex as this thing moved on, that it was fairly obvious to me that they weren't in a white van, if it ever. However, that sort of stuck. And, of course, Chief Moose was basically relaying what the federal profilers were telling him. So I don't want to fault Chief Moose on that. He was very much being advised as to what to say at these press conferences and when to say it. And unfortunately, he took some of the heat for that. And it wasn't his fault. Okay. Speaking about the press conferences, he uttered a line that I don't think has ever been explained, that apparently the the shooters wanted him to say something about a duck and a noose. Yes. Can you— Basically, what this had, this had to do with their God complex and this had to do with their— Ability to control the police and to control the narrative. So basically, they felt that they wanted Chief Moose to dance to their music. In my opinion, they were getting off on that. Look at us. We can say something ridiculous and make the chief repeat it. Okay. And How did they get that line to the chief? That was through some written communication and also some phone calls that were made later on. So they actually called? They called in, right. And we're trying to use their own words. We're trying to use their own actions basically to trap them. 
because when you don't know who you're dealing with at that point, the more communication that you can create and establish, hopefully maybe a negotiation, we'll figure out who this is. And they did some of that through the, the notes that they left at a couple of the crime scenes. What did they leave at the crime scenes? I mean, Well, there was some issues with that, and that's where some leaks occurred right. well, with, the, within it that were damaging to the investigation. You talk about the tarot card? The and, tarot card that was left at Tasker Middle School right. after the young man was shot, and right. thank God he lived. That's where the God complex came from because the top line on those notes said, call me God. There were some other indications in that note that very quickly we realized, okay, we're not dealing with terrorists here because what organized terrorist group would leave little kids' star stickers on their note? There was some other language that they used that made it obvious that we weren't dealing with a highly trained terrorist cell. We're dealing with a couple of maniacs on a killing spree. So, you know, those are all clues that points us in the right direction. One of the things that they left was the Death's Head Tarot card. And in that note that they had left along with that was, do not tell the press. They were making an attempt to reach out to us. And unfortunately, that tarot card got leaked. The press picked up on it. And almost within a few hours, there was another shooting. Right. And that was devastating to all of us that that kind of thing got leaked out. Because there's certain things you don't – it's not that you don't want the press to have it. You don't want them to have it at that particular time. Right. But it must have been leaked by someone in law enforcement, correct? Yes, it was. So I I strain to think of what the motivation is of someone who sees something that says, don't tell the press – and then turns around and tells the press. I've never quite understood that anyway, the number of times it's even happened to me. But, you know, I I realize that some people have their own reasons for doing things, but quite honestly, I've never had to deal with, I mean, this is unprecedented. What would have motivated the person to say when people's lives are at stake to have released this? I'm I'm really surprised. I'm like you. I have a very difficult time wrapping my head around it, whether it was personal gain, whether it was those egos starting to come out that we had talked about earlier. But it happened, and it was devastating. And it was to the point that it came close to really damaging these close-knit relationships that we had because FBI agents are looking at troopers. We're looking at Montgomery County officers. We're looking at the feds. Who's, Who's leaking this? There was very limited number of people that knew about that tarot card. And- the fingers were starting to point and conversations were starting to occur behind closed doors with internal agency as opposed to all of us working together. And that that was damaging. And it could have blown this whole thing apart. Now, throughout all this period, I think everybody's got a story about how, you know, they ducked when they got gasoline. They, um, you know, they, they refrained from going out in public because they were afraid or whatever. I was living in Frederick at the time and my vet has a very visible location at an interchange in Frederick, the intersection of US 15 and Mater Avenue. Mm-hmm. And curiously, I'm in at seven in the morning to drop off a dog for whatever it needs. And there's a, a sheriff's car parked in the parking lot. And my first reaction is at seven o'clock in the morning, oh, I'm gonna meet a canine dog. And turns out we're the only ones at the vet. And I'm thinking, well, that's kind of weird. And so I. It, 
you know, 7.15, I'm driving home, and I noticed that every interchange in Frederick, you could see a police car parked prominently, which sounds like I always assumed that this was a way to just kind of lay down a marker and say, look, we're watching this spot. Even if there wasn't a, a policeman inside the police car, at least there was a way to say, you know, drive on, drive on, drive on. Was that part of the strategy? Partly so, but I can tell you, and I detail it in the book. I was trained as an undercover police officer, as you know, we go back <laughs> quite a few years. Right. I was also trained to think like a bad guy. And as I'm working this case and, and doing the criminal intelligence analytical part of this, I'm thinking, if I were, were these snipers, what would I do? And all you had to do was look at a map. You saw the shootings in Montgomery County. Then as police pressure comes in, they move that first night down to D.C. Then they move into Virginia. Then after the, the governor inadvertently sort of challenged them, they go to Prince George's County and shoot the young man. Where didn't they shoot anybody? North or east towards Baltimore. If I was them, I would not sleep where I was killing people. And very early on, and, and a lot of it has to do with, I spent a lot of years working law enforcement in, in, in Frederick County. And you become not only colleagues, but per close personal friends with people. And certainly, uh, Lieutenant Tommy Chase, I'm sure you remember Tommy, mm -hmm. Frederick City, he was the chief investigator at, at the time. Also, Chief Dine, I knew very, very well. And actually got a chance to work with him again at U.S. Capitol Police after we both had moved on. But I was in constant contact just about every day with Tommy and certainly the sheriff's department and everybody else. And I kept telling them, I know in my gut they're in Frederick County. Tommy sort of felt the same way I did. And needless to say, Sheriff Hagee at the time, he certainly agreed. So law enforcement in Frederick County was they were on it. They were on, they were watching everywhere they, they could watch. And I was providing them with as much information that, that we had, what was new. And I kept telling them, they're not in a white van. I don't know what they're in at that point, but they're not in a white van. And I believe they're staying in Frederick County. And I also had personal reasons. My daughter and my family lived in Frederick County. Right. I did. And I was very much in fear for then. She was 13. And that's irrational, but when you work this kind of case and you see this kind of violence, yeah, I'm a supposedly a rough, tough lieutenant with the Maryland State Police, but by God, my daughter bleeds the same as everybody else's, and you were in fear. We were all in fear. And I think that leads back to, to where you're going at the vet. You bet. You know, the, the police were everywhere they could possibly be. And it wasn't, I don't believe it was just happening in Frederick County either. I I think if you went over towards Howard County, because we were talking to those folks too, you'd have found the same thing. Right. Well, I, after it was over, and of course they were captured in Myersville, I could clearly remember a newscast where you know you see the the map of, um, I guess there was a shooting in Spotsylvania or, or right. Fredericksburg over the guy's shoulder. And this map included Frederick County for some reason. And I remember looking at it and thinking, that's funny. Frederick is as far away from all the shootings as Fredericksburg is. Hmm, maybe there is. Maybe we should be paying more attention to this locally as, you know, as, I mean, we were co certainly covering it as a story, but 
you know, it was like, eh, now, now I'm a little worried about this. And, well, uh, that's funny because that map I helped create. <laughs> so you, 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 you bet because I, I felt all along that that's where we were going to find them. So we'll talk about the, I guess it was the night of the, I guess it started the night of the 23rd and they were captured in the early morning hours of the 24th. Yes. Um, now, as I recall, as the story I've heard is that there was some debate about whether to, A, release the, the, the you guys had finally said, okay, it could be a caprice and you decided, okay, we're going to ask people to look for it, Correct. That's that's correct. That's really an oversimplification. Well, but walk this, us through. This was, this was a result of some tremendous police work that was done by a lot of people. When this case broke and the big tip came in that got us on the right track, it came together very, very quickly. And, and I can tell you, for 23 days, 22 of those days, we had no clue who the shooters were. We really didn't. When the shooting in Virginia at the Ponderosa Steakhouse, there was another note left. And the, the, the shooters were sort of telling us how stupid we were and that we weren't listening to them. They had tried to call in to the tip line a couple of times. They had even talked to a priest in Ashton, Virginia, and they weren't taken seriously. Well, the first thing we do is go talk to every priest in Ashton, Virginia. And, and sure enough, the priest recalls talking to these guys and thought, well, this is another troubled soul because during the course of this, there were so many leaks and so many detailed information that was being broadcast really 24-7. We had all kinds of people calling in and confessing from all over the country. And they had enough detail that you couldn't just automatically, well, that's a nut. We can scratch that one off the list. We had to check them out. And honestly, the priest was thinking along those same lines. But once he was interviewed, he, he said that, uh, that he were told that the police were looking in the wrong place. They needed to look at a liquor store robbery in Montgomery. And our first thought was, well, Montgomery, Montgomery County, sure. And then it dawned on us, you know what, there's more than one Montgomery in this country. And sure enough, we found a liquor store robbery in Montgomery, Alabama that sort of matched their M.O., it was a liquor store robbery, and there was a shooting involved where a lady was killed standing outside the liquor store. She was shot in the face. They threw the revolver down. That was different. It was shot with a revolver, and these two guys ran. And as they ran, the younger one dropped a guns and ammo magazine out of his back pocket that he had lifted from inside the store. And lo and behold, there was a fingerprint on that magazine. And this had occurred several weeks before the shootings up here. The authorities down there got no matches. They, they ran that print through their own systems, but not nationwide. And it was considered, you know, the, the typical random robbery gone bad and there was a murder that was committed. We got a hold of that and we ran that through the entire fingerprint system, national, federal, all the states, which – since this time, that has been one of the major improvements that those systems are now all linked. Mm -hmm. And it's much easier to get that right. random match from somewhere right. across the country. Uh, the fingerprint uh, came back to Malvo through immigration. He had been deported. He was an illegal, had been deported a couple of times and fingerprinted along somewhere along that, that lane. So that gave us Malvo. And very, very quickly, once you got a name, you could start figuring out who he is, where he is, who he's hanging with. And that we come up with Muhammad and the trail of bodies to the west, to Seattle, where it was discovered that he had been staying with an army buddy. 
and they had been shooting this rifle into a stump, which certainly matched the shootings that we had. So, and this again is where the, the beauty of the federal government, if it would have been one of our agencies, we would have sent a couple of detectives out with a pocket knife and a plastic bag to try to dig some bullets out. The feds dig the whole stump out and fly it back on a C-130 back here to the labs. And within a few hours, bullets dug out of that stump, match bullets removed from the bodies. And in the meantime, my unit, we were starting to draw circles around each of the shooting. And I wanted to know, I could not believe somebody in law enforcement hadn't spotted these guys coming or going from these homicides. We've very quickly and under great pressure, and these guys are unsung heroes. There were very young computer programmers created a program using parts of other programs to do link analysis. And we wanted to know every tag number that police officers had called either an hour before or an hour after each one of these shootings and around the circle, you know, one mile, three mile and five miles, I believe it was. And sure enough, the Caprice showed up in most of them that it had been run by a police officer because the police officer thought, man, there's something wrong with those guys. But once again, we're programmed. We're looking. We're still looking for white vans. And this blue Caprice is sleeking around. Cops knew something was wrong. But again, we're programmed right. to look for white vans. That's what they were doing. That all come together about the same time. And sure enough, that tag come back to Muhammad, which had that name had already been linked to Malvo, which linked it back to the car from New Jersey, the tags. And it all came together within, honestly, less than 24 hours. This all, all these things happened right. at the same time. And it was really based on that tip that they left us on the note from the Ponderosa shooting. And that's how it all came together. So that last night, there was really a struggle. When do we release this? Who do we release this information to? This is who we're looking for. We finally have a name. We finally have a car. We finally have really the first solid lead. Right that you could actually call right. a good lead. Right. And there was a debate. The feds did not want to release it. There was some argument and some egos involved here, of course. I sort of understand where they were coming from because they didn't want to scare the guys away. But my standpoint was, is the police officers need to know this. Right. We had cops out here not, that did not have this information. I feared another 9-11 where my troopers might have had a chance to disrupt what happened, but didn't have the information. And certainly I felt that, man, the media and the public are going to help us find these people. So a decision was made by Colonel Mitchell, superintendent of the state police, and also Governor Glenn Denning. We don't care what the feds are going to do. We're releasing it. So we did. And needless to say that night, I happened to be the highest ranking trooper in the building when this happened. And it was a little bit of an argument. And the colonel told me it might be a good time for you to clear out of there. You've worked three days straight, go home. So I told him I'll take flyers north to Frederick because I told you I believed all along that's where they were. Right. And uh, it got released through the state police PIO and also through radio police radio broadcasts. And as luck would have it, little WFMD there in, in Frederick mm -hmm. put out the information. Of course, this is 1030, 11 o'clock at night. And a, a state worker who happened to be a, a Genie Buzzard resident, you know, sort of a disabled right. American, his job was to empty trash cans up there. He spotted the car and realized that, man, that's the car the police are looking for. He went and he found Mr. Donovan, who happened to be 
of all things, an electrician driving a white van that had stopped in the rest area just to get right. a few winks. And the two of them teamed up, made the call to the Frederick Barrack, and I happened to be coming north when they called me over the radio because they knew my the barrack knew my involvement right. and told me they'd been spotted in the rest area. And by luck, I happened to be the highest ranking trooper just trying to go home. So I wound up being the third police officer trooper on the scene up there and wound up being in command of the arrest. And that's how that happened. So, you know, for all the leaks that we had and, you know, of course, being the cops, we're, we're cussing the media, but really the media, you're doing your job. But it was the media that actually helped us in the end and the citizens track these guys down. Right. Your lips to God's ears. So what was it? It must have been a, a, a hell of a scene. Um, you've got two guys. They're still asleep, as I recall, right? Well, to be honest with you, when we get up there, we have no idea. All we know is is the car is in the rest area. We, we've got our two witnesses still in the rest area, still in the white van, mm-hmm. talking to the barrack on the phone. I get dispatched because of the right. beautiful, amazing building that Sheriff Hagee built up there. Yeah. We have had the capability to actually make those phone calls, and I could talk through the barrack to my witnesses directly. Mm -hmm. And they were telling me, the car is there. We don't see a soul. Myself and the the couple of troopers we had up there at that time, yes, we could have bum-rushed them without a doubt. Mm -hmm. My fear. Now, I'm the lieutenant. I'm in command. I'm responsible for the safety of everybody up there, including any civilians. My fear was these guys had a rifle. Obviously, they knew how to use it. Going back to my training, if I was them, I would have been taking turns sleeping with one in the car, the other one in the woods on overwatch with a rifle. Mm -hmm. My fear was if we went busting in there, the three of us, and that was the case, two of us are dead before we get out of the car because that rifle would have went right straight through our vests. And all we've got to fight back in the dark in a wooded area is a handgun and a shotgun. Mm-hmm. I did not like the odds. And my thought process was is, well, let's surround them. So, yeah, it was a hell of a scene. And there was five or six hours there that it was probably the most intense police situation I know I have ever been in. And I think I utilized every bit of training that I had ever had right. through that. But we eventually got enough assets up there and were able to bring a combination of FBI, state police, and Montgomery County tactical team was put together called Tango Teams, and they came in and executed the takedown. And as it turns out, they were both sound asleep at, I think it was 4.45, something like that in the morning when we uh, this entail- gave them their justice call. Now, as I recall, there were there were other cars in that parking lot. Yes, there were a so few you had cars. So you had to get them out away from the scene. We... And- we actually did the same thing with the citizens that we did with the snipers, as luck would have it. And again, I, I, I think there was, I don't know what you believe in, but whatever you believe in was certainly looking over our shoulders that night. Because as luck would have it, we didn't have any families in a station wagon in the rest area. It was late enough, it was gone. We, of course, sealed the rest area. Nobody else was getting in there. We, we had Mr. Donovan in his van. We, we had the, the employee... And his car, his car was parked there, but we knew where he was. He was okay. We had a few trucks that sleep there overnight. We left them be because one of the things were is what if they have 
one of these trucks that they've sort of carjacked. That truck is going to run over my blue caprice right. and, and not think anything about it. So we wanted to prevent that. We wanted to prevent a hostage barricade situation. We thought, well, as trucks leave, we'll search the trucks and we'll bleed them out. And and that's honestly what we did. There were three or four trucks that never did wake up until we took them, took them down and then we quickly hustled them out of there. But we had a couple of trucks that we actually were leaving. We actually helped. They helped us blockade the exit. Because right. I did not want to that car to get out of there, and then we have a running mobile gun battle. Uh, I did not think this was going to end well when this started. I, I just couldn't imagine them giving up without a fight. And you know what? My opinion was as, as commander, on-scene commander, if anybody leaves in a body bag, it's going to be them, not a police officer. And that was my responsibility, and I very much felt that. And as it turns out, it was a textbook operation. It could not have gone any any better. It was like right out of TV. We surrounded them. Everybody stayed put. We were able to maintain silence. We were able to get secured airspace, presidential airspace over top of us. So we weren't concerned with Channel 4, Channel 9, or somebody's news helicopter uh, coming over. And as I recall, one of your colleagues at the time at Frederick News Post was little upset with me that he wasn't allowed to come up with his, his camera, and we're okay now. We had a couple of beers afterwards over, over that, and we're just fine. Okay. But um, anyway, yeah, we were able to, to maintain security, and, and we got him without firing a shot. Well, I, I do – if you're talking about Bill, Bill Green, right. uh, he's a dear friend of mine. But uh, as I recall the story, he and uh, another reporter were stationed far enough away from the action that they could see what was going on, but they – weren't in and to get to the, the the scene after you know when it was obvious something was going on they came across a police tape and i've known bill for for 30 years and i think police police tape has never really stopped him except that one time and so you can go back on the records we we had to we had to buy a picture of the car because i think you bought a uh, you brought a uh, um, not just any old you didn't just tow it away. You had a you had it encased in something so that nobody could even take a picture of the car yes. as it was leaving. Yes. So we had ended up having to buy a picture of the blue car because he was with another photographer, and the other photographer said, "I'm going," and Bill said, "I'm not." <laughs> well, I I will tell you, and and this is you know, and Bill knows this because he knows me, and he heard the radio. He knew that I was the guy up there. We were loaded for bear. Yeah. As you can imagine, yeah. the nerves were on edge. In fact, at one point, I had ordered anybody that wasn't in uniform off that mountain because I was so afraid that we would have a friendly fire yeah. incident because we had, I recall, a DEA agent coming up behind me wearing a pair of shorts, mm -hmm. his DEA hat on backwards, carrying an MP5, which is an assault rifle slung across his chest wearing a black jacket. And I can tell you, um, Trooper Dwayne Smith and I damn near killed him because as luck would have it, again, somebody's looking over his shoulder too. The streetlight shone and you could see his little DEA emblem on his chest or we very well could have killed him and that would have certainly woken up the snipers and then we would have been dealing with a different situation. Right. And that was a fear of mine, trying to control that up there right. because the cops' bloods are, are they're up. I mean, everybody was expecting a firefight up there because look at all the people they killed. This was a com very much so a combat situation. 
to a certain extent. And those cameramen could have very easily have found themselves on the wrong end. Well, I mean. But thank God it worked out. Yeah. 18 years later, we can all sort of smile about it. Right. You've mentioned a couple of times the media in this. What is your take on the media as this went through? And, and, well, I'm, and I'm not asking you to be nice to me. I mean, give us Well, the honestly, I've had a very good career working hand in hand with the media. I mean, you remember me from your Frederick County days. We worked very, very well with certainly the Frederick News Post up there, and I was sort of used to that. I was used to reporters that had ethics that knew if I asked them, hey, don't print this, there was a law enforcement reason why I was asking them to do it. I trusted that they wouldn't, and they certainly trusted me that I wasn't just being an ass. And they also knew that they were going to get the story from us when it was the appropriate time to do so. So for me, working with the media was something I had always done. As you recall, after 9-11, really, I guess before 9-11, the 24-hour cable news started. Right. right. That changed a lot of things. And there became a real competition. And, and I may be speaking out of turn, but you know the, the media side of this. I, I believe there became a real cutthroat competition as to who was going to get what on the air first. And competition sort of the ethics started to creep out. And I never had that problem, but the leaks were, were devastating to the task force. They were devastating. It might, it might have cost a life or two. You know, I can never say that for sure, but it might have. The, the risk was there. However, I also understand, because I was trained, um, the PIO of the state police, Greg Shipley, I'm sure you, you know Greg. Right. He taught us in a class one time, never argue with someone or get on the wrong side of someone that buys ink by the barrel. Sure. So I had no problem cooperating with, with the media. And ultimately, it was the media getting the information out that helped certainly bring these guys to justice. And in a case like this, I just can't imagine any conscientious media person not wanting to assist the police in catching this right. these killers. Uh, they were just devastating our way of life if you right. think about it. So I have a mixed feeling. There, there was some on that task force that wouldn't give you the time of day to this day. But I certainly believe in my heart that the media has a job to do. It's part of our great society. It's part of what keeps us a democracy. And there has to be a working relationship between law enforcement and the media that we can understand each other's needs and work backwards from that. There's no reason why that can't happen. So on that note, the book is In Pursuit, The Hunt for the Beltway Snipers by David Reichenbaugh. How can people get this? It is in bookstores. I cannot tell you which ones. It all depends on how the, the sales are going. But you certainly can get it online through Amazon, through IndieBound. There's a couple of different outlets out there that you can go online to get it. And again, my sole purpose certainly was not to make money. I'll never make any, a dollar off of this book. I, I can assure you of that. Was to tell the truth. The, the, the real story needed to be told from the police perspective. And I happened to be a person that was in a position where I could do that. And I felt that, honestly, it was an obligation. And when I started writing this book, I thought, well, if it never gets published, that's fine. At least my grandchildren will have an idea of what their grandpa did back in the day. I got some great support getting this thing done. I was able to get a great literary agent, Laura Strawn, out of Annapolis, who helped me uh, 
get it published through University Press of New England, Four Edge Books. Uh, so this was pu- this was not self-published, and it's out there. I had an interesting call as I work on the Capitol right now. I had an interesting call before I left. A lady from the uh, Library of Congress called me looking for some information on a personal matter, and she said, yes, we have your book in the Library of Congress. And there's sort of a makes me smile a little bit. I won't lie. But yeah, the book is out there. And I still have a few book events around the area now and then that slowed down quite a bit. I'll be in Bel Air October 26th uh, at the public library. I'm mostly doing library events at this point. But yeah, appreciate the support. Hopefully I can break even on this. And uh, But yeah, the, the book has been very well received. And I got a, a, an endorsement from just one of the greatest writers ever, uh, police writers, Joseph Wambaugh. He hadn't endorsed a book in 30 years. Mm. Um, and Joe endorsed this. Mm. There it is on and, the back. Yeah. And that was that was quite an honor for Joseph Wambaugh, probably the greatest crime writer in our era. I mm. think I've read every one of his books. Mm-hmm. He's 83 now, doesn't write much, but he endorsed my book. And that was that was quite an honor for me. Okay. This has been very informative. I appreciate this. Absolutely. Anytime. I'm, I'm glad to help. And, and just on a side, all you citizens out there, stop when you get a chance and, and buy your local police officer a cup of coffee or shake his hands or give him a smile. Because I will tell you, it wasn't just me out there. There was a thousand cops out here. And every one of your Montgomery County policemen that were on the job were doing everything in their power to track these guys down. And law enforcement cares. They care deeply. Once in a while, do we get a black eye? We sure do. Once in a while, do we deserve it? We sure do. But 99.9% of these men and women out there are on your side. And they're people with families just like everybody else. Hey, thank you, Mr. Reichabal. I appreciate the time. Sure, absolutely. All right. This has been Montgomery Talks. I'm Doug Tallman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media, and please join us next time.